0: Finder community, we're back with our regular segment where we speak to great people from the world of sport. And today, it is no different. I have Miss Lindsay Ross with me. Lindsay, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, man, for having me.
0: Uh, it's my absolute pleasure. Lindsay, um, before we get into the nitty gritty of your current day-to-day, take me back in time. Who was Lindsay as a young lady at school? <laughs>
1: Oh, wow. Um, gosh, from very on, I was a, I was always into sports, but more into the teamwork aspect. So I'll, I was a cheerleader in high school, and even in my earlier days. Um, but I was kind of into the cheerleading, not for like the competitive aspect, but I was kind of one of those psycho cheerleaders that wanted everybody to know the positions on the field and Um, the plays that they were running, uh, I thought it was built and designed to support the team. So I was a little bit on the crazy side, um, to the point that thank goodness, YouTube and Twitter and all that wasn't around at that time. Um, because I have received technicals as a cheerleader in basketball. Um, in high school and was ejected from a game from one of our our rivalry games back in high school. I grew up just outside of Dallas, Texas in a place called McKinney, um, actually one of the homes of the Mickey, Mickey Mantle World Series. Um, so it was a great place, great environment. Um, growing up, it pretty much it was Friday Night Lights where the town shut down for high school football events and, and other sporting events about one stop on the on the homecoming parade in the downtown area. So great environment, but that's kind of where my love for sports began.
0: Wow. Um take me through your college years and how you got into into the world of sports because being a female at the time and getting involved in sport is very different to getting involved in sport now as a as a as a female.
1: Yeah, so I went to the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I was a business major at that time and started my freshman year in international business. Thought that that was kind of the route I was going to go. Still had that desire to be involved in sports. So I worked in the athletic department all four years um, in the sports information office, supporting kind of interviews and, um, and that statistical type of side, writing side as well. And then realized through the course of that that I didn't want to sell widgets when I got out of um, school. And so really wanted to marry and find the bridge between that business aspect of sports and how I could go into that um, after I graduated. There wasn't a whole lot of opportunity after when I graduated in 2002, date myself, um, for that marriage between sports and business, um, in the MBA programs out there I think there were about five at the time. And it, you know, a lot of programs believed at that time that sports kind of watered down the business, um, side of their house. And I, I think that that time has certainly changed since now, because you look across most universities offer some sort of business sports admin in their business department now. But um, through college, I, I loved it. I, I got a chance to write and get to know the athletes and coaches, um, all the while kind of still studying marketing and international business and those things.
0: Very, very nice. And upon completion of college, where were you heading to?
1: So I chose to go to Florida Atlantic University um, and attend their NBA sport program. Um, the rationale for why I chose that program was primarily because they use sports professionals, active sports professionals, as their um, as their professors throughout the course. So you had traditional business courses, but you also had industry-leading kind of professionals that were teaching your sports classes. Um, and it was a great chance for me to get hands um, kind of involved in sports you had to work during the day in sports and then classes were at night so for me not really knowing what aspect of sports I wanted to go into uh, that community in South Florida was a great opportunity that had professional sports it had um, local community um, sports it had college kind of had everything the sports commissions in that area they hosted a lot of you know, national and worldwide events. Um, And so it was a great chance for me to figure out coming out of school, what area of sports I wanted to be in.
0: Very, very nice. Um, And then post-college, you you seem seem to spend a few years at ESPN. Um, Programming and acquisitions. I think, did you just miss that spending spree or were you you the one pushing it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was probably contributing to it at the time. Um, But I had several stops. I didn't necessarily know that I want to be on the media side. I had several stops getting me to um, ESPN, which were very interesting. And I think a lot of um, young professionals go into any industry and have a goal of where they wanna to get to. And because they're so rigid about that being their goal and their pathway, that they miss out on opportunities along the way that would have taken them to a greater opportunity. They just, you know, they were so set on one thing. So the one thing that I, I do look back and I'm so thankful that I kind of took the path of uh, circumstance and kind of what was presented in front of me answered one question of does it make me better professionally and if the answer was yes I kind of went with it um after my mba program i ended up taking a job at conference usa in dallas texas with the commissioner britton benowski and at that time katrina hit and um mm-hmm. southern miss and tulane were universities that were you know devastated by the impact of that and um, dislocated kind of all of their student athletes into different places and I kind of learned a lot about crisis management. I was, st- I was still working in sports information and that one thing led to another. I ended up kind of working at the ACC right after that because of some of that crisis management and they were going through the Duke lacrosse scandal and, and then the Yardley Love murder case. Um, so I stayed in sports information but certainly Um, the crisis management side helped me get to the next position. Uh, Spent about seven years at the ACC. And at that point, I asked um, to be involved in media negotiations. Um, I was a liaison to our TV partners. And that's where I got to know the ESPN folks. Um, And so, again, by circumstance and networking and, and solid relationship building, that's what led me, um, to ESPN. Not that I was seeking, you know, ESPN or the media side, as far as the money goes. Um, you know, I, nobody really trains to be a programmer, um, and to build a 24 seven schedule. Although in hindsight now I've, it's great training for being a, a mom in, in quarantine a programming of programming a twenty four seven with your with your family and your kids these days, so I now have great training. But um, you know, I tw- I twisted it in the fact that when I took the job at ESPN, look, I work in sports information and kind of the PR and crisis management. I can basically convince any coach to play at five a.m. in the morning in your twenty four hour you know marathon. So I can do the job as long as I can, you know, convince people people to play at different times. And so I started in in college basketball, which I spent my entire time at ESPN and programming of college basketball, men's and women's. And um, again, with my MBA, kind of on the side, asked to be involved in acquisitions and buying rights and um, how can we find new events and things like that. And again, I. I had great managers that allowed me to kind of challenge and use those tools that I had in my toolbox, and uh, so I was very appreciative. But I got a chance to spend a little bit of money. Back to your question.
0: Nice. Can you can you share with us what? Or?
1: I was um, I had the opportunity to be involved in the renegotiation of the America East, um, the Horizon League conference, ma- mainly in college. Uh, athletics I was on the college team uh, in the programming side so most of it was in college athletics the big 10 I was involved in but it was uh it was all a lot of fun great learning um, you know there's I, I think you asked me or you kind of prepped me that at least you know eventually you'd ask for one suggestion of what to teach people and in that particular moment at ESPN it was certainly the chance of asking to be involved in something you weren't asked to be involved in and the worst case is somebody saying no and so negotiations for me was was something that I wanted the opportunity to have experience I wanted to learn I wanted to challenge myself into getting some reps and and some of that um, and I was fortunate enough to to be able to join forces with that and and lead some negotiations as well.
0: Wow, amazing! And then you moved on to Flow Sports, um, similar role, director rights acquisition. Uh, take take me through that and and what that what that entails. Yeah, so
1: the. The rationale of that move, again, I go back to I'm a very strategic person in nature and trying to continue to challenge myself to get better um, and add new skills. And this was a chance that I knew that the world was moving in this digital space. Um, I knew that ESPN was, was moving in that space, but certainly there were companies out there that were further ahead at that point in the, in the digital, um, media rights landscape. And so I wanted to be involved and learn from, from one of the companies that had almost started the sports, uh, media landscape in, in digital. And so they were located in Austin, which again, I went to school there. So it was kind of like a homecoming, um, great place to live and raise a family. And, um, And then selfish, selfishly, my husband is the vice president of the Washington Wizards um, and was traveling quite a bit. Uh, We had two young kids at the time. And to be in Austin also meant that with two working professional parents that travel an awful lot and work an awful lot. It was a chance for me to have family surrounding our, you know, our our family to help assist with the kids um, and be a part of. Bigger part of their lives as well. So there were some selfish reasons of jumping into Flow, but certainly from the professional side, I was really eager to get involved and learn on uh, on the digital space. As far as my role today, I um I oversee Flow Football and Flow Hoops. As far as rights acquisition, acquiring rights for those two verticals, and then I help um, oversee our strategy. For all of the college landscape. So we were uh, fortunate to partner about six months into my role, maybe a little bit longer, maybe nine, um, and doing a, a partnership with Colonial Athletic Association to be their primary rights holder. The first, the first NCA conference to have their primary primary rights holder be a digital company. Um, and again, so that's Really exciting! It's certainly the the way of the future, um, I believe. At some point, linear and digital is going to cross paths, and we're not really going to ever know the difference, um, is is what I I believe. But it's been it's been great. I've been at Flow for just over two years now, and I have learned a ton. I've learned about kind of the the trends and behavioral um, aspects. I've learned that fans. A lot of sports fans are fans of a sport um, individually, which sounds like a no-brainer, but when you look at kind of a a traditional media company that um, markets to a generic fan base, um, then you'd, you'd be surprised, whereas Flow Sports serves individual sports in a vertical space, where Flow Hoops 365 days is talking basketball and you're not having to wait for football to end for the basketball stories to begin. Um, and so it's, it's just been a lot of fun, a lot of learning. And I think I've, uh I think they'll keep me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um Talk me through the differences you've noticed working with an, a big behemoth like ESPN and then, a smaller sized company like Flow. I mean, you mentioned before that ESPN was moving into the whole digital ecosystem and live streaming and so on and so on. But not as quick as Flow, um, which is quite interesting because they have more resources, more personnel, more staff. They also have their stacks bigger, so on bigger organizations, so on. But surely having being the size they are and having the resources, they could move quicker and see and foresee foresee the future and, you know, and guide the way. Why is it these large companies don't don't do that?
1: Yeah, the problem is priorities. Um and you know they've got priorities on both sides of the fence. And so it's very hard to straddle the straddle the fence. Um in a linear space, you know, your revenue is tied to ratings. Um Nielsen ratings and your affiliate contracts and those things. And so for you to prioritize the digital space, it means that it's in direct conflict with you know your ratings on the other side. And so they I mean, and they do a really good job of of creating two different pathways for the two totally different fan bases, one the probably younger generation on the digital side and the older more um, you know, linear space of those demos. And so it's just hard. I mean, to have both sides, I'm not sure that you can really succeed. I always say that ESPN is a great company, and I have tons of great friends and had an incredible time there. Um, but no one in today's environment, media space, can be all things to everyone. You have to know what your priorities are and go after that and super serve those. Um, it's the other thing that I experienced at ESPN is, and again, no fault to ESPN, it's the the priorities that be. A, an HBCU um, MEAC school or um, colonial school for that matter I was never going to prioritize of putting them on ESPN um, over a kentucky versus no-name school. Um, it just wasn't happening based on the way ratings supported um, the masses and, and that. And so I felt coming into the digital space at Flow, I felt like this freeing, kind of hands untied, mentality where I can serve all parties equally not one party versus the other Um, and so that's been really exciting there's not shelf space at seven o'clock only one you know one game gets to play at seven in the digital space it's I can prioritize several games at that time so it's um it's interesting but you know I think ESPN has done a great job getting into the digital space. I think their priorities are so vast that it's hard, It's just harder to try to be everything to everyone.
0: Very true. Um, well, I have to ask you this this question here. COVID-19, how has this impacted your business? Um, life sport, <laughs> it's, it's, it was non-existent until Dana White basically put it all together and said we're going and even he had big disney executives down 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 his neck saying stop relax no more you know and rugby league in australia and so on and so on so what's it like how do you get out of here like how do you pivot
1: (laughs) yeah the the one thing about flow sports i will say is kind of our dna was was created for an environment like this well, wow. and what I mean, what I mean by that is every time I go into a rights negotiation or conversation with a potential rights partner, um, I always talk about live events are important absolutely. I will never argue that, but it's not enough. The storytelling and the journeys and the um, challenges that athletes face those stories are more impactful these days than the live events themselves. Very true. So our company and, you know, if you go back to the beginning of our company where there were two brothers, one was a track athlete, one, one was a wrestler. And they graduated and felt there was no storytelling. They couldn't find their, a way to support their, their stories. and so they ended up you know, buying a bunch of equipment, buying a van, traveling around and putting track meets and wrestling duels on, on the internet for free, realizing they created this huge fan base and then turned it around to, to monetize it and do more. So that's how we, that's how we developed uh, Flow Sports. And so in that mindset, these two brothers believed that the storytelling was so important. That these fans and and communities wanted to see, you know, not just show up for a championship, park and play, and you get out and you feel good about it. No, it's like, where do you, they go from there? What's their their training begins right after the championship? And how do they get there? And what did they overcome? So I say all that because COVID, while certainly un, unfortunate um, and devastating to many families and um the time period has allowed us to prove that the model is successful and that that's exactly what media companies need to prioritize so about two weeks into um, the pandemic when stay-at-home orders were kind of trickling across the country the we launched for our partners in the CAA we launched a 24-7 channel where they can um, their sports or communities could support kind of their stories and continue to engage in their market and so it it has not while I would say that the company does not want live events to stop for uh, much longer (laughs) um, and we're excited to see that they're they're coming back it uh, was a time period that Proved a lot of the things that our company was built on.
0: Wow. Amazing. Um, Yeah. And that, that story with them jumping in a van and going around and organizing meetups. That's just fascinating. It really, um, the power of storytelling storytelling and the narrative is a lot of the times missed by teams, um, especially when you have 30 players on a team, it's thirty different stories. It's thirty different backgrounds, networks, and connections, and so on that you could dig into, just by telling telling their story. So yeah, it's it's interesting how that gets neglected. Um, but one one organisation who does do that well is the uh, U, the UFC. They really dig deep, you know, with their embedded and their their fighter profiles and so on. And that's why you see their social media engagement and even their fan base just growing at crazy numbers. So, just thought I'd, I'd throw that i throw that one in.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. It's um, you know it's expensive to do for a lot of companies, and so they they focus on the production and the live events and neglect. I, I will say, if you're a digital company, it's um, it's a requirement. Um, you've got to be able to build interest in the events. And for the younger demo, it's a requirement. Um, they're not I mean, younger people are very stingy with their time. They want to make sure that they're maximizing and they've got so many different ways to spend their time now that you have to be telling them why is this athlete important or what have they gone through and how can you relate? So it's um Storytelling is just as, in my opinion, just as important as the live events.
0: Absolutely. What does the future look like for digital streaming and, and digital companies? I mean, where are we gonna go from from here? My previous my previous uh, episode was talking to the D- Director of Partnerships at the Miami Heat. And he was telling me the, the MBA is is inserting VR cameras on a call, and you can basically watch it like from home or, or wherever you are, you can watch it like you're in the front seat of the court, like live action. I mean, that's pretty insane. So where where are we going?
1: Yeah, well, gosh, if I had the right answer for it, then I probably um, would be the CEO of some multimedia, Multi-million-dollar company, um, and hopefully you still be interviewing me. But um, <laughs> I, I don't know if I have the answer, other than I and I alluded to it earlier. I do think that the digital and linear environment will um, intertwine. That there won't be a cable versus digital type of offering. I think all of it will be one and the same.
0: Can, can
1: the can, oh, go ahead.
0: Go on, sorry. sorry, sorry.
1: I was just gonna say the aspect of entertainment versus data, versus, um, and when I say inter- entertainment, there's different consumptions of live events, just a viewing experience versus a feeling, the experience of kind of this VR environment. There's also an engagement on betting, um, and so the data rights, Um, so the convergent of all of those things together right now is, is partitioning off and splintering in different ways. Um, so you may, a company may own the, the audio and the visual media rights, but actually partition off the, um, data set for, you know, various betting opportunities. I do think there will be a, um, pulling together all of those where a rice holder will become the powerful entity holding all of their rights and they will have kind of an a la carte method of how they want to distribute data they may have a VR partner they may have a you know a true linear PlayStation type of environment they and then they may have a separate betting arm and so there won't in my opinion I think, the in between of these media partnerships will look and feel different, um, and at some point, all of those may come back back together. But again, it's right now; it's media companies are trying to figure out, especially the traditional ones. You know, they can't be everything to everyone, and so where do they want to be in the space, and where do they want to focus their attention? Um, and that, I think, will drive a lot of because. Um, flow sports is doing great. We don't have to be the partner for the NFL. Um, and we are likely not the best partner for someone looking for masses and in just, just masses, not engagement. But, um, we are going to be the best partner for a lot of the Olympic sports and niche sports, because we can rally communities in that space. Um, So back to your question, as I drift a bit, I think that it will splinter off. Um, I think ultimately it'll come back together. Um, But I think the in-between, you're gonna see some big players having some identity crisis over the next couple of years of where they wanna be.
0: Absolutely. Um, Do you think there will be a reduction in the amounts of money that these outlets will be willing to pay for rights?
1: yes and no um i think the the overall investments will change i think investments in marketing and storytelling have to be considered in the overall kind of total investment of the media company versus the partnership um and so i think that's the narrative's changing a little bit already um you know a partnership with flow entails deep marketing commitments from our side. And that has to be part of what the rights holder views as important to them. Um, But I, you know, partners cannot continue to pay these huge rights fees and then do right by the partner on the internal investments. So it's a, it's a catch 22. While that sounds great, and, you know, it might be different in various sports entities' life cycles. The NFL may not need a partner like CBS or ESPN to do some of the marketing for them because they, you know, their life cycle is is much further along. Um, so it varies by, by company um, and sports entity.
0: One thing I have to ask you is where do the social media platforms come in and, and play their role? Because... They've got a lot of the attention. So have does, for example, someone like a Flow Sports come in and work with a Facebook or a Twitter or, yeah. or a Snapchat.
1: We um at Flow Sports, we have great partnerships um with these entities and would and want to continue that route. The the worst case scenario is viewing those partners as competitors, because again, they're we serve totally different, um, priorities. So for us, it's less about how can we create this narrative of of the storytelling and the athletes instead of pulling, forcing people to come to us for, for our partners, we push all of that, uh, content to those platforms. Mm -hmm. So, you know, fish where the fish are essentially, don't necessarily kind of force your fans to come to you. And, and that's why, you know, 80%, if not a little bit more of our content is in front of the paywall, not behind. Um, And those are pushed out to every platform, social media platform there is again, to create that interest and engagement.
0: Yeah. And there's, there's a huge battle right now as we speak between the platforms on who really becomes that that video king? Um, YouTube's leading the way, but Facebook also wants it, and they with their Instagram TV, they also want it. And you know, it just it's it just doesn't end, right?
1: Right. right.
0: Well, wow. fascinating. A lot a lot happening. Um, what's three pieces of advice you could give for somebody looking to go through a career in sport?
1: three pieces of advice that yeah. I give to yeah. a young professional yeah uh, one is to realize the world is really small and how that relates to your networking um, network as often and know that you're networking every single day without you proactively think you're thinking it, that you're networking your interactions with people every day in the sport um, are networking alone and they will come around. Your contacts will come around in a different form or fashion. Um, the people that you interact with someday could be the people that would be hiring you. Um, mm. And so I think that the concentration on networking is, is really important. When I first started um, in kind of that, O oh, two O oh, three, I would take my contacts and I would choose A through C last names, and I would email each of them. And the next day, it was like D, you know, D through F type of thing. Um, and so I was constantly early on um, massaging and spending time and nurturing those relationships that have turned out to be lifelong um, 20 plus year relationships. Um, The next thing, number two, would be to be bold. I think I said this earlier. It it does not hurt to ask to listen into a conversation um, that you'll be respectful. You'll sit back. It's just, you know, ask to have learning opportunities along the way asked to be in rooms that you're not necessarily invited to a, a meeting again you have to be respectful you have to make sure that you're you're um, adhering to kind of the, the norms of that i'll just I just want to be a listening ear but if you're not bold in taking opportunities like that to learn constantly every day then you'll miss out on some skill sets uh, and opportunities that you never would have presented themselves to you and then the third is I think not unique to this time but certainly I think people would agree that challenge yourself to be a better person every single day you know how can I and and that's an active thing that we have to work on it's not like just I'm going to wake up and be a better person it's Are the people around me challenging me to be better both professionally and personally are the environments I I'm in. Am I taking advantage of platforms and things to challenge others to be better? Am I being kind? Am I listening to my coworkers and the people under me of what they're going through? I I just think it's, it's not a natural thing. You have to proactively challenge yourself to be a better person every day. And while that doesn't necessarily translate into just the sports world, I think for any professional out there, I think it's really important that that is constantly one of your priorities.
0: Well, There you go. My my last question, or maybe second last, being a female and growing from strength to strength, in the world of sport. What was that like?
1: Yeah, I would be lying to say that there haven't been times that being a female has been more challenging in the sports environment. Early on as a young professional, there were times, and this is pre-Me Too movement, Um, there were times that, I mean, I worked for the Miami Dolphins at one point when I was in South Florida and I was assigned because I was the lowest person on the sports information poll, toll. I was assigned to losing team locker room quotes. And so here's this five foot nothing female going into a losing locker room full of angry upset emotional um grown men and so I mean there have been times that I've been yelled at I've been called all sorts of names um there have been times I've been hit on and had to figure out like then how how do I play this out till it's it's a person of celebrity status in the sports world. And do I, do I tell somebody or do I not? Um, again, going back to that kind of like challenge yourself to have the right people around you. Those are certainly moments that thank goodness I had people that would mentor me through those things. I didn't always do the right thing. There were several that I never said a word about and kind of kept going. Um, there were some that I, I did, there were moments that, uh, even later on in my career that I'm asked to not recently, but that I've been asked to just go get the coffee and the Cokes and, you know, those type of things too. So it's one of those, you've got to have a strong backbone. You've got to be able to speak up for yourself. Um, and a lot of times it's just, or do you have the mentors and the people around you that you can kind of keep everything in check and ask yourself, you know, solid advice from people that you trust around you. Um, it's not, I, w- I would say it's not completely, you know, easy now. So we haven't solved every, everything. Um, but it's, it's certainly more welcoming than, now than it was 25 years ago, and I love to. I love seeing females assist other females, um, and males assisting females getting into the sports. I, I some of my greatest mentors were were males, and you know they supported me throughout my career and continue to. So I think it's it's upon all of us to help support our colleagues. Um, and pull them up where, where we
0: can. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it seems to be, um, stories are pretty similar. Actually. I, I've interviewed a few females in, in the world of sport from NBA teams and NFL and so on and so on. Uh, it's the stronger ones that persevered that they're the ones that got through and they're doing extremely well now. So, There you go. Very, very strong, very, very strong messages there and messaging. Lindsay, you've been amazing. You've shared a ton of insight with us. Um, Thank you so much. Before we let you go, where can people reach you online?
1: They can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and I try to stay away from TikTok.
0: (laughs) Uh, Lizzie, thank you very much once again. I want to thank you very much for joining me on the Sports Finder podcast. Thank you.
1: Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Ahmad.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sports Finder podcast. We'll catch you on our next episode. Y'all ready for this?